Welcome to the Terry Podcast, Tales from Near and Far. Read to you by Pratham Data. A Child's History of England by Charles Dickens. Read to you by Pratham Data. In the last session, King John died, the king who ruled England for 17 years during whom the Magna Carta was signed, the one who's always the villainous protagonist in Robin Hood tales, and, of course, and during whose time, England lost all of its Normandy possessions to Philip II. So King John is dead. The year is 1216, and the next piece starts. Chapter 15. England under Henry III, called of Winchester. If any of the English barons remember the murdered Arthur's sister, Eleanor, the fair maid of Brittany, shut up in a convent at Bristol, none among them spoke of her now or maintained her right to the crown. The dead usurper's eldest boy, Henry by name, was taken by the Earl of Pembroke, the Marshal of England, to the city of Gloucester, and there crowned in great haste when he was only ten years old. As the crown itself had been lost with the king's treasure in the raging water, and as there was no time to make another, they put a circle of plain gold upon his head instead. We have been the enemies of this child's father, said Lord Pembroke, a good and true gentleman, to the few lords who were present, and he merited our ill will, but the child himself is innocent, and his youth demands our friendship and protection. Those lords felt tenderly towards the little boy, remembering their own young children, and they bowed their heads and said, Long live King Henry III. Next, a great council met at Bristol, revised Magna Carta, and made Lord Pembroke regent or protector of England, as the king was too young to reign alone. The next thing to be done was to get rid of Prince Louis of France and to win over those English barons who were still ranged under his banner. He was strong in many parts of England and in London itself, and he held, among other places, a certain castle called the Castle of Mount Sorel in Leicestershire. To this fortress, after some skirmishing and truce-making, Lord Pembroke laid siege. Louis dispatched an army of 600 knights and 20,000 soldiers to relieve it. Lord Pembroke, who was not strong enough for such a force, retired with all his men. The army of the French prince, which had marched there with fire and plunder, marched away with fire and plunder and came in a boastful, swaggering manner to Lincoln. The town submitted. But the castle in the town, held by a brave widow lady named Nicola de Camville, whose property it was, made such a sturdy resistance that the French count in command of the army of the French prince found it necessary to besiege this castle. While he was thus engaged, word was brought to him that Lord Pembroke, with 400 knights, 
250 men with crossbows and a stout force, both of horse and foot, was marching towards him. What care I? said the French count. The Englishman is not so mad as to attack me and my great army in a walled town. But the Englishman did it for all that and did it. Not so madly, but so wisely, that he decoyed the great army into the narrow, ill-paved lanes and byways of Lincoln, where its horse soldiers could not ride in any strong body. And there he made such havoc with them, that the whole force rendered themselves prisoners, except the Count, who said that he would never yield to any English traitor alive, and accordingly got killed. The end of this victory, which the English called for a joke, the Fair of Lincoln, was the usual one in those times. The common men were slain without any mercy, and the knights and gentlemen paid ransom and went home. The wife of Louise, the fair Blanche de Castile, dutifully equipped a fleet of eighty good ships and sent it over from France to her husband's aid. An English fleet of forty ships, some good and some bad, gallantly met them near the mouth of the Thames and took or sunk sixty-five in one fight. This great loss put an end to the French prince's hopes. A treaty was made at Lambert, in virtue of which the English barons who had remained attached to his cause returned to their allegiance, and it was engaged on both sides that the prince and all his troops should retire peacefully to France. It was time to go, for war had made him so poor that he was obliged to borrow money from the citizens of London to pay his expenses home. Lord Pembroke afterwards applied himself to governing the country justly and to healing the quarrels and disturbances that had arisen among men in the days of the bad King John. He caused Magna Carta to be still more improved and so amended the forest laws that a peasant was no longer put to death for killing a stag in a royal forest but was only imprisoned. It would have been well for England if it could have been so good a protector many years longer, but that was not to be. Within three years of the young king's coronation, Lord Pembroke died, and you may see his tomb at this day in the old temple church in London. The protectorship was now divided. Peter de Roche, whom King John had made Bishop of Winchester, was entrusted with the care of the person of the young sovereign, and the exercise of the royal authority was confided to Earl Hubert de Burgh. These two personages had from the first no liking for each other, and soon became enemies. When the young king was declared of age, Peter de Roche, Finding that Hubert increased in power and favour, retired discontentedly and went abroad. For nearly ten years afterwards, Hubert had full sway alone. But ten years is a long time to hold the favour of a king. This king too, as he grew up, 
showed a strong resemblance to his father in feebleness, inconsistency and irresolution. The best that can be said of him is that he was not cruel. Duroche coming home again after ten years and being a novelty, the king began to favour him and to look coldly on Hubert. Wanting money besides and having made Hubert rich, he began to dislike Hubert. At last, he was made to believe, or pretended to believe, that Hubert had misappropriated some of the royal treasure and ordered him to furnish an account of all he had done in his administration. Besides which, the foolish charge was brought against Hubert that he had made himself the king's favourite by magic. Hubert, very well knowing that he could never defend himself against such nonsense and that his old enemy must be determined on his ruin, instead of answering the charges, fled to Merton Abbey. Then... The king, in a violent passion, sent for the mayor of London and said to the mayor, Take twenty thousand citizens and drag me Hubert de Burgh out of that abbey and bring him here. The mayor posted off to do it, but the archbishop of Dublin, who was a friend of Hubert's, warning the king that an abbey was a sacred place and that if he committed any violence there, he must answer for it to the church. The king changed his mind and called the mayor back and declared that Hubert should have four months to prepare his defence and should be safe and free during that time. Hubert, who relied upon the king's word, though I think he was old enough to have known better, came out of Merton Abbey upon these conditions and journeyed away to see his wife, a Scottish princess who was then at St Edmundsbury. Almost as soon as he had departed from the sanctuary, his enemies persuaded the weak king to send out one Sir Godfrey the Crancombe, who commanded three hundred vagabonds called the Black Band, with orders to seize him. They came up with him at a little town in Essex called Brenswood, when he was in bed. He leapt out of bed, caught out of the house, fled to the church, ran up to the altar, and laid his hand upon the cross. Sir Godfrey and the black band, caring neither for church, altar, nor cross, dragged him forth to the church door, with their drawn swords flashing round his head, and sent for a smith to rivet a set of chains upon him. When the smith, I wish I knew his name, was brought, all dark and swarthy with the smoke of his forge, and panting with the speed he had made, and the black band, falling aside to show him the prisoner, cried with a loud uproar, Make the fetters heavy, make them strong. The smith dropped upon his knee, but not to the black band, and said, This is the brave earl, Hubert de Burgh who fought at Dover Castle and destroyed the French fleet and has done his country much good service. You may kill me if you like, but I will never make a chain for Earl Hubert de Burgh. The black band never blushed, or they might have blushed at this. 
They knocked the smith about from one to another and swore at him and tied the earl on horseback, undressed as he was, and carried him off to the Tower of London. The bishops, however, were so indignant at the violation of the sanctuary of the church that the frightened king soon ordered the black band to take him back again, at the same time commanding the sheriff of Essex to prevent his escaping out of Brentwood Church. Well, the sheriff dug a deep trench all round the church and erected a high fence and watched the church night and day. The black band and the captain watched it too, like 301 black wolves. For 39 days, Hubert de Burg remained within. At length, upon the 40th day, cold and hunger were too much for him, and he gave himself up to the black band, who carried him off for the second time to the tower. When his trial came on, he refused to plead, but at last it was arranged that he should give up all the royal lands which had been bestowed upon him, and should be kept at the castle of Devizes, in what was called Free Prison, in charge of four knights appointed by four lords. There he remained almost a year until, learning that a follower of his old enemy, the bishop, was made keeper of the castle, and fearing that he might be killed by treachery, he climbed the ramparts one dark night, dropped from the top of the high castle wall into the moat, and coming safely to the ground, took refuge in another church. From this place he was delivered by party of horse dispatched to his help by some nobles who were by this time in revolt against the king and assembled in Wales. He was finally pardoned and restored to his estates, but he lived privately and never more aspired to a high post in the realm or to a high place in the king's favour. And thus end more happily than the stories of many favourites of kings, the adventures of Earl Hubert de Burgh. The nobles who had risen in revolt were stirred up to rebellion by the overbearing conduct of the Bishop of Winchester, who, finding that the king secretly hated the charter which had been forced from his father, did his utmost to confirm him in that dislike, and in the preference he showed to foreigners over the English. Of this, and of his even publicly declaring that the barons of England were inferior to those of France, the English lords complained with such bitterness that the king, finding them well supported by the clergy, became frightened for his throne, and sent away the bishop and all his foreign associates. On his marriage, however, with Eleanor, a French lady, the daughter of the Count of Provence, he openly favoured the foreigners again, and so many of his wife's relations came over and made such an immense family party at court and got so many good things and pocketed so much money and were so high with the English whose money they pocketed that the bolder English barons murmured openly about a clause there was in the Great Charter, 
which provided for the banishment of unreasonable favourites. But the foreigners only laughed disdainfully and said, What are your English laws to us? King Philip of France had died and had been succeeded by Prince Louis, who had also died after a short reign of three years and had been succeeded by his son of the same name, so moderate and just a man that he was not the least in the world like a king as kings went. Isabella, King Henry's mother, wished very much for a certain spite she had that England should make war against this king. And, as King Henry was a mere puppet in anybody's hands who knew how to manage his feebleness, she easily carried her point with him. But the Parliament were determined to give him no money for such a war. So, to defy the Parliament, he packed up thirty large casts of silver. I don't know how he got so much. I dare say he screwed it out of the miserable Jews and put them aboard ship and went away himself to carry war into France, accompanied by his mother and his brother Richard, Earl of Cornwall, who was rich and clever. But he only got well beaten and came home. The good humour of the Parliament was not restored by this. They reproached the King with wasting the public money to make greedy foreigners rich, and were so stern with him, and so determined not to let him have any more of it to waste if they could help it, that he was at his wit's end for some, and tried so shamelessly to get all he could from his subjects, by excuses or by force, that the people used to say the king was the sturdiest beggar in England. He took the cross, thinking to get some money by that means, but, as it was very well known that he never meant to go on a crusade, he got none. In all this contention, The Londoners were particularly keen against the king, and the king hated them warmly in return. Hating or loving, however, made no difference. He continued in the same condition for nine or ten years, when at last the baron said that if he would solemnly confirm their liberties afresh, the parliament would vote him a large sum. Wishing you a very happy new year, a lovely 2021. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed it, please comment and please like it and subscribe. Please do let me know if there are certain tales from whichever part of the world you might be in that you would like me to read. Thank you.